Survival Podcast is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Friday, January the 27th, 2023. I'm almost comfortable saying 2023 after most of the month of the first year. The first, most of the first month of the year has passed. It's always a little weird for me when we transition into a new year, especially a weird number of a year, like... 23. What's what's 23 even all about? 23 skidoo, right? Anyway, anybody know what that means? I do. Do you? If you don't, we have the most powerful tool for research in the world today, known as the internet. You can find out. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? It will not be anything to do with 23 skidoo. It will be a whole bunch of really great stuff from the Expert Council Q&A, because like I said, this is Friday, 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 the Monster Show of the Week, where you get your answers uh, to your questions from real experts in the business and hear a little bit from me as well. Today in the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights, Dr. Paul will ask the question, well, what would it look like if we actually followed the Constitution? Dan McAdams will talk about why the CDC continues to say the covid vac side effects are rare when they seem to be anything but rare. I think everybody knows somebody that had a serious reaction on some level to the vaccine. And if you don't, you probably just don't know many people. Chris Rossini will tell you why government has always been nothing but a pipe dream. My response to that, I'm going to zone in a little bit on Dan's uh, segment there on COVID. I promised you yesterday that my segment was going to be about the big dump of information that just came out from Project Veritas about a Pfizer executive saying that Pfizer is doing weird shit with the virus for research. And I don't want to actually talk about it very much. I thought about it, and I'm like, you know, there's tons of people covering that. I'm really not like a current event show. That's not really what I do. I, I'm more on the solutions side, so I have a different segment for you. I'll tell you what it is in a minute. Doc Bones will talk about how a sense of community affects your odds of survival in a real survival situation. Nick Ferguson will talk about planting a dam wall to stabilize it and provide for ducks. Jessica Mills will talk about solo versus hiking with a partner. It's an interesting question. And then we will have a huge grab bag from John Pugliano from Investable Wealth. Major purchase timing, ETF decay, buy and hold versus sell now and more. I am blown away by how much John fit into about a five to seven minute segment, somewhere in that range. Now, what did I change my segment to? This will not be a biochar segment. I know I'm really excited about biochar. I've, I've booked Michael Whitman for Tuesday next week to talk about that subject in depth. But it is thinking that way that got me this morning thinking to how much wealth we're destroying with the way we manage, or I should say fail to manage, uh, farmland. And when I say that, I really mean agricultural land. Any land that is used for any purpose for the production of food or ag products. So anything from grazing land for cattle to, yes, land that is used to grow corn and soy and wheat. All of it. And I'm going to talk about it from the standpoint of how the Bitcoin community has changed time preference in how they view wealth preservation through Bitcoin into that multi-generational thinking. Why farmers do what they do because it's a business, not farming anymore. 
and how to change that equation based on, even if you want to break it down to it, greed, but use it for positive. Do you think that can be done? Come on, guys, I've been doing this a long time. Don't doubt me. If I tell you I'm going to do something, you know I'm going to be able to do it. Anyway, with that said, let's go ahead and get into it, but let's hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Paul Wheaton over at permies.com. What he has for you this week, and I'll probably be telling you more about it next week because not enough of you have jumped on board with it yet. Alan Booker, this guy's an amazing scientist, a soil scientist and a genetic scientist. He did a seminar with Paul over two hours long on seed saving, but specifically not just how to save seed at a superficial level, how to breed honey badger plants that will grow on your property like nothing else ever will, and how only you can do that for yourself. No matter how close someone is to you, you get seeds from. No matter how quality what they're doing is, that there's a symbiosis with what goes on on your property that can only happen on your property. This seminar blew my mind. How much is it going to cost you? Ten measly bucks. There'll be a link in today's Daily Mail if you're on that. If not, there'll also be a link in today's show notes. Again, this is episode 32, 36. Next up today is John Bush's free seminar. You can't get cheaper than free. So, coming up very soon, we will have a five-day-long series of seminars each day beginning at 11 a.m. Central, running from February 6th to the 10th. I will be speaking and working with John on the uh, seminar that will be done on Tuesday the 7th between 11 and 1 p.m. And I think all of the days are kind of running that time slot. Again, this is totally free. All you have to do is sign up for it, and you can dig into this. We're going to be talking about opting out of the CBC, CDBC control grid that's coming. I'll be bringing some of my unique perspective. Yes, we're going to be talking about Bitcoin as a strategy because it is, to me, it's a keystone in the, the total strategy. But there's more to it than this. There's more to it than just buy Bitcoin. It's like something I don't think you can leave out, but I think there's a lot more to it. And John's going to be covering a lot of aspects of that. But I'll be bringing my unique viewpoint on this that I think is, uh, is needed in something like this because we do have a problem. If you're not sure what a CBDC is, let me just tell you, this will be the greatest tool for human control and enslavement ever unleashed on humanity, and it will be done across time, it won't be overnight, and it will be very, very seductive in the way that it's done. I'll give you some ideas when I have my discussion with John about how they'll implement it to where even the starchest opponent right now might be like, well, that doesn't sound that bad. That's how they do everything. Thou shalt sell thy lie with the truth. And we will talk about how to avoid the trap. And you need this. And it's free. So you should sign up. You should use my link so if you ever buy something, I get credit for it. All right. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and dig on into it. Here we go. In order, Dr. Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, Chris Rossini on what if we followed the Constitution, what's going on with the CDC lying about vaccine side effects, and Chris Rossini telling you why government, well, it's a pipe dream. You know, when I was uh, in the presidential campaign, I remember we had a fair number of uh, debates in 07 and 08. And uh, there was a time when, uh, okay, today we're going to have a debate over economic policy. Okay, that's good. So we'll do that. And then the next time they say, well, now we're going to have, uh, the next go around, we're going to have a debate on foreign policy. 
And I got to thinking, and I think I did get a chance to express myself. But where, why is it so different? How can you have foreign policy issues without dealing economic policy? You run up these deficits and, and you, oh, but that's all done in the name of national security. Uh, social policy is all done for helping the poor and the unemployed, this sort of thing. So that, that, is, uh, that is an artificial separation because it shouldn't be that complicated. Some people think that I make it oversimplified, but I don't think it has to be more than that because the Constitution is uh, available to a lot of people and they don't have to have a PhD to read it and know, know what it says. But basically the theory and the thrust of the Constitution is the government should be non-interventionist. They should stay out of our houses. They should give us our privacy. They should stay out of the economy. They should stay out of our affairs. And they should stay out of the affairs of other nations. And non-interventionism is one thing. It goes to both areas. And uh, that is a basic principle. If you don't understand and know what non-intervention is, and that it means voluntarism and people don't, aren't forced by the government on everything that they do, uh, then, then we don't live in a free country. And I think more and more people today are starting to realize, you know, that seems right. We don't live in a really a free country, but we have to do it. We have to do it because now we now we have COVID. What are we going to do without the government? Well, we'd have been a lot better off without the government over COVID or or being involved in the coup, which started this thing in 2014 in Ukraine. So non-intervention and voluntarism is a far cry better than the kind of nonsense that Republicans and Democrats basically promote as a bipartisan agreement. Rasmussen, who we cite quite often, they do a lot of public opinion research, and this is, and we, we are going to talk about Musk later, but this was pro what prompted Musk to, to tweet out a revelation that was really fascinating, was this exact study. So let's put this next one up, and it's pretty easy to follow, Dr. Paul. They did a survey. 68% of 260 million adults, that's 177 million people, indicate they received the COVID-19 vax. And 7% of those reported <coughs> major side effects. That translates into 177 times 0 .07 into approximately 12 million people, reports Rasmussen. The CDC, they continue, says major side effects are rare. How many people does the CDC estimate had major, major side effects? So here, what they're pointing out is that 7% of the people that took the shot are reporting major side effects. But the CDC, CDC still maintains that side effects are rare. And so Rasmussen went in and said, well, what is the de definition of rare? And let's put this next one up because this is the definition of rare. Rare is when you're talking about 0.01% of major side effects. So by the own definition of rare, Dr. Paul, these shots don't qualify. And in fact, they move up to not rare, not uncommon, but actually common. Because common side effects between one in 100 people and one in 10 people, one to 10%. So 7% major side effects. They can't keep calling it rare. So there's more deception there on this. So Rice-Mason is doing a very interesting job here, I think. The goal, obviously, for these globalists is world government. It's an old idea. You know, they're still chasing after it. It's a terrible idea. It's not the purpose of government. Uh, you know, and you can see they want global taxes, carbon taxes, wealth taxes. You know, they want a piece of everybody around the world. You can see why they would want such a thing. 
Uh, but government, if it exists, and government does not have to exist, it's a man-made thing, it's not a force of nature, but if man decides to make government, it should be as local as possible. Uh, you can change your local government. You have some influence over the people that rule over you. In fact, you can locally even run for government. But the further out you go, the less influence you have. You know, I have much less influence over my state than I do over this uh, small town that I live in. And then the country, forget it. I feel like I have zero influence. Now, could you imagine the world if decisions are made in Switzerland on how you're supposed to live in your small little town? It's an absurd idea. It's so absurd you even wonder why they even uh, reach for this, you know, ridiculous goal. But because everything is different, no matter where you are, where I am is much different than Switzerland. How can we have the same policies? You know, but they don't think in those terms. They just think of power. I guess they get a, a thrill out of making rules that they think everybody's going to obey. So in any case, government must be local. This idea of world government, you know, they, it'll fail, you know, the sooner the better. And then hopefully, you know, we keep them at bay for a good century or so. So I've got a few things in it. First, I'd point out that the actual uh, COVID death rate for total, the, the infection fatality rate, the IFR, under the definition that Dan McAdams gave you, would be rare. Dying from COVID is rare under the point, uh, point, uh, point 0.1%. Because when we look at the COVID death rate, which is very low to begin with, that's about this the CFR or the case fatality rate versus the massive numbers of people that get COVID, never know they really, they, they, I had something and then they go on with their life. So yeah, their vaccine is, is side effects are not rare at 7% and that's probably a low ball number, but the, uh, but the, the the number that actually is rare is people dying from it, even though they're still trying to terrify people with it. I'm sorry, it's just it's just the way that it is. But of course, it comes from government. So what else would you expect? Real quick, I'll mention if you haven't seen this yet, Project Veritas ran a sting. A, a senior Pfizer executive thought he was on a date, like a hookup date, right? And so he spilled the beans that Pfizer is jacking around in laboratories, causing the virus to mutate on purpose. So that they can get ahead on the next vaccine because, you know, it's not like a cash cow. He actually uses the word. I don't want to dig deep into that. It's just, I'm not even surprised. And I think the bigger story that we're starting to see with all of this stuff coming out, whether it's Project Veritas doing this, whether it's the revelations that basically all of these you know, presidents, vice presidents, and cabinet members have taken classified documents, and who knows what happened to them. Uh, the Elon Musk dumps at Twitter. Uh, Paul Pelosi's video should come out soon, and we can find out what really happened with Hammer Time. The real lesson in this is most people don't give a shit. They've made up their mind, they've made a decision, and nothing will change it. Complete conclusive proof that they're wrong won't change it. And this is why I say the 7% number on vaccine rates is probably very low versus the real number. Because there's a shitload of people that went and got the clot shot, got the clot booster one, booster two, booster three, booster four, yeah? And they had side effects, but they're true believers. They're true members of the cult. They weren't reported. They weren't reported. And if they're not dead, you don't know. If they didn't have myocarditis and need to go to an emergency room, you don't know. Because I'll give you an example. 
My brother-in-law, who's an obedient servant of the government, yes, he had severe reaction to it. He didn't report it. I know he didn't report it. I know that my grandkids' other grandparents, the one had a serious reaction to it, didn't report it, then got COVID, ended up in the hospital after being vaccinated. Yeah, right? So that's just, that's just two. And I know more. That's enough, though. There's a tremendous number of severe reactions not reported. And I believe there's probably a significant number of deaths and serious illnesses due to the vaccine's reaction that are not seen as vaccine reactions because they don't happen within, you know, a week of getting the vaccine. So it must be something else. Anyway, no one cares. You've got to understand people aren't going to care. On that note, I'm running some polls on Twitter. I, I ran a few. But I'm going to make it a thing that we're going to talk about every week. So if you aren't following me on Twitter and you want to participate in this, you may want to. But uh, I actually created a hashtag with a poll I ran yesterday. I have a new one out today. It's hashtag TSPC polls. I usually run the polls, polls for one day. If I launch a poll on a Friday, I'll run it for two into the weekend. And I'm going to start like having four or five polls a week. And then Mondays, we'll just go through and give you the results of them. Uh, what we have this week so far... What is your plan to deal with CBDCs? And how confident are you that we can address our current problems in society through politics over the next 20 years based on a percentage of problems solved via government and voting? Those, that's the one that's open right now. You can vote on it through Saturday. Anyway, with that, let's move on. Next up, we have a totally different topic. How much does it improve your odds of survival to have a sense of community in a real shit-hit-the-fan scenario. Old Doc Bones will talk about that. Hi, Joel and MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today I'd like to talk about how a sense of community affects your chances of survival in times of trouble. Sure, we've all seen programs that follow the adventures and misadventures of individuals in survival settings. And sometimes one or two rugged survivalists will even survive an off-grid challenge, sometimes naked, for a period of time. Despite this, seeing the results of extended time alone in the backcountry, I come away with the feeling that isolation is a bad thing for human beings. Surprise, surprise. Well, let's imagine that a monumental disaster has occurred and you have survived. The power grid is down and it's unlikely to be up again for years. You, however, have prudently stored food, medical supplies, farming tools, and hunting equipment. You're safe and alone in your shelter. You're a fine, young, reasonably intelligent, and physically fit person with no medical issues. Well, it sounds like you figured out the formula for success, but guess what? You haven't. The problem with my description is one word, and that is alone. Lone wolves are considered to be resourceful and tough, and they are for a while. Unfortunately, the lone wolf usually ends up a pretty miserable creature. Face it, wolves should be in a pack. When I talk about this topic, I always post a picture of an animal from Tasmania called a thylacine. It looks a little like a wolf, but it has stripes on its back, so you might know it as the Tasmanian wolf or the Tasmanian tiger. Despite the names, it's not related to either. It's actually related to the kangaroo. Now, why did I choose this animal to, to illustrate my point? Look at it, and you'll see it's certainly much less impressive than, let's say, a majestic gray wolf. Heck, it's not even a real wolf. The reason I mention it is very, very simple. The Tasmanian wolf is extinct, and if you try to go it alone in a long-term disaster, you will be too. The most basic way to assure your well-being is to have help. The support of a survival group, even if it's just your extended family, is essential if you're going to have any hope of keeping it together when things fall apart. 
Off the grid, you're going to have many responsibilities. You have to stand watch over your property and supplies. You have to lug gallons of water from the nearest water source. You'll have to chop wood for fuel, perhaps. You'll have to search for food. To get a real idea of the situation, just fill a five-gallon bucket of water, carry it around the block. Piece of cake for you? Well, how about chopping some wood then? But do it after staying up all night outside your house. Maybe you can accomplish the above for a few days, but on a daily basis for an extended period, well, don't be so sure. Just do it for one day and you'll begin to understand what I mean. For most of us, it would be the very definition of a miserable existence. Now, it wouldn't take very long before your health would suffer. Exhausted and sleep-deprived, you'll be an easy target not only for marauding gangs of desperados, but marauding bacteria as well. Since your immune system weakens when exposed to long-term stress, you're going to be at risk for succumbing to illnesses that a well-rested individual would easily weather. Division of labor and responsibility makes a difficult situation more manageable. You can imagine how much easier this would be if you had a group of like-minded individuals helping each other. It's not just a physical exertion. You can't possibly have all the skills needed to do well by yourself. For example, Amy and I are medical professionals that graduated from the Master Gardener program for our state. We have a working food and medicinal garden, have ham radio technicians licenses, and have even raised tilapia in ponds as a food fish. We have some skills, but we have never done, say, any carpentry. We've never raised livestock. Neither have we ever been in charge of the security of others. There are those, however, that have done these things, but could use some of the skills maybe that we possess. Put together enough people with differing skills, and you have, even in the middle of a devastated city, a village. A village that's filled with people that can help each other in a crisis. A rugged individualist might be able to eke out a meager existence in the wilderness alone, but a society can only be rebuilt by a community. There's no time like the present to communicate, network, and put together a group of like-minded people. Now, how many? The right number of able individuals to assemble for a mutual assistance group? Well, that's going to depend on your retreat and your resources. If each of these people have accumulated food, medical supplies, and other essentials, you've got a pretty good start. The ideal group will have people with diverse skills, but similar philosophies. This is difficult to accomplish after a disaster has occurred. Before the you-know-what hits the fan, however, you can work to find like-minded folks that wouldn't have an argument every time something needs to be done. Identifying people that you can work with before a catastrophe hits, that pays dividends down the road. Now, unless you're already in such a community, you may feel that it's impossible to assemble a group of people that could help you in times of trouble. That isn't the case. Whether online or in person, there are others who think like you do. Start at your local place of worship, civic club, or similar groups, and you will, over time, find them. It's not enough to just be in a group, however. The people in that group must have regular meetings, decide on priorities, and be ready to set things in motion. You have to devise a plan A, a plan B, a plan C and decide what trigger events would set them in motion. Keep lines of communication open so that all your group members stay informed. In normal times, it's easy to become complacent about this stuff, but during many disasters, things will go downhill fast. If your group isn't on the same page, especially about what to do if a trigger event occurred, some of your members may not make it back to, say, a, a backcountry retreat. This results in your community losing members with important skill sets. It just takes a road closure or two to block the success of a mutual assistance group. I have to say that there's more that goes into a successful survival group than just being, well, a group. Consider a copy of Charlie Hogwood's excellent survival group handbook for good advice on how to navigate the ins and outs of a harmonious survival community. It'll help you succeed even if everything else fails. 
This is Joel and MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, our award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook won't teach you about successful group dynamics, but it will teach you about how to deal with over 200 medical topics off the grid. And don't forget to get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. I won't add anything much to that because it's so astutely stated. We are a communal, communal species, right? That doesn't mean that we're communists, but we are communal. We work together. We cooperate. The first thing that two groups of humans do that encounter each other, if they are not interfered with, if they don't have so much fear that it leads to immediate conflict, is attempt trade with each other. That's always been the case throughout history. And trade is more effective when there's a community because then you spread out across larger expertise and you build something of value. So I, I think community is incredibly important. With that, let's go on to our next one. This is a question for Nick Ferguson on stabilizing a dam wall with plantings and doing so in a duck-friendly way. Nick, take it away. Hey, guys. Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty here with an answer for a question on dam impoundment management standards. Hi, Jack. Uh, expert counsel for you or Nick Ferguson, any recommendations for duck-friendly, shallow-rooted plantings that would work on a dam? More info, we have a recently dug pond, which is keeping our dozen Muscovies very happy. It's still got a lot of bare ground all around it, and we want to get it fully planted this spring. In the meantime, we've been mulching as much as possible per your recommendations. We'd love to get in some bushes that will act as fodder for the ducks and flowers for pollinators, like Aronia Siberian pea bush, maybe currants, but want to make sure that we don't weaken the dam at all. We're in eastern Tennessee zone 7. Thank you, Daniela. All right, that's an excellent question and one that lets me address a common catastrophic type 1 error that I see all the dang time. The error is allowing large woody tree species to grow and establish roots on man-made earthen impoundments. These, you know, these may never be a problem, but they normally do create a problem. It might take decades, but those kinds of tree species will destroy a dam. So, imagine you have a pond. Three-quarters of the pond margin is natural soil, you know, just the native soil, with the remaining one-quarter of the margin of the pond um, being the impounded dam wall. We're just going to make this up, right? There's no problem with trees growing along the natural soil margin, but the moment you have trees growing on a dam wall, you make me cringe. Um, <clears throat> the, the reason is uh, these trees will create large roots that traverse the dam wall and basically penetrate it. And then when this tree dies years down the road or sheds a root, um, it leaves rotten wood behind. And that wood rots and it continues to get smaller and smaller until what you end up with, especially if you have clay soils, is you end up with a clay tube, a pipe that goes straight through your dam wall and could be enough to make a hole in your hole in your dam wall and uh, basically just drain it and then you have a dam wall blowout and it's a whole lot of expensive dirt going onto your neighbor's property. Not a good thing. 
But here you're asking about shallow-rooted species, which on its face sounds fine, and it can be fine because we're talking about the top 8 to 12 inches of soil being kind of inundated with root mass. If, and that's a big if, if you can consistently keep that edge species ecosystem managed as only short, shrubby species, that's fine. But it's going to be difficult to do that consistently, and the next people to inherit or take over the management of this system likely won't know this critical point. There can be no trees growing up amongst the rest of those woody perennials. The problem with the short, shrubby edge species ecosystem is that it is literally a nursery system for large overstory trees. It's trying to become a forest. So you're going to be fighting it constantly. And it's not really great to design a system where you have to fight it constantly to keep it in a healthy state. So instead, I try to, you know, use the path of least resistance. And instead of creating something that's going to make a whole bunch of very critical work for me, instead I always try to encourage people to fence those areas in such a way that you can manually or mechanically keep the riparian area managed because we don't want the livestock getting into the water. And then you have herbivores mow your whole impoundment area and keep it in grass. Um, that's what I always encourage people to do. So here's the deal. Ducks, or in this case Muscovies, aren't really herbivores. So growing bushes and berries for them isn't really what they're going to be interested in. They'll eat some berries, but it's not going to be a major part of their diet. I have Muscovies just kind of turn their nose up at mulberries and other kinds of berries all the time. They're just not really that interested in it. Some people may have a different result. I just haven't seen them be really interested in it. What they really are interested in would be a nice grassy slope with lots of crickets and grasshoppers. That's exactly what a flock of Muscovies would love to find in that area. So I counsel you against filling it with shrubs and instead focus on grassy species and low-growing forbs to encourage insects that the ducks like to eat. If you want to get real independent of the feed store with those birds, you need to get fodder trees growing and feed those leaves to critters like rabbits and guinea pigs, and then you can feed those guinea pigs and the manure to black soldier flies, or, or rabbits and the manure to black soldier flies, who will make lots of larvae that you can feed those birds. You can basically turn the leaves into meat critters and then turn those meat critters into insect larvae that you can feed those birds. But, you know, if you really want to plant something along the, the margin, then I'd stick to things like elderberry, mints, stay away from the larger woody species. You might be able to go blackberries or raspberries and mow them every other year to keep the woody species in check and simultaneously replenish the cane fruits. I hope that answers your question. To find out more about me and to get info on consulting and uh, anything else that I do over there, head over to homegrownliberty.com. I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. I do have an addition. I completely agree with grass and forbs, but if you wanted something to lock up a dam breast and be tall, there's one more option. It's also a grass. It's just a grass of a different scale. And that is bamboo. 
Bamboo is one of the miracle plants of the world. It is one of the few plants in the world that will grow 50 feet or more tall. Grow the size of a large man's arm. It is incredibly useful for building materials, biochar, and a thousand other things. Provides a wonderful habitat for critters like ducks to go into and hide. Provides a beautiful understory, and because it's a runner grass... While it will spread, it will only spread where it can get enough moisture and fertility and where you don't mow, okay? And it will only spread about a few inches deep into the soil, making a large mat that is virtually impenetrable for just about anything else. And you can, like, carve pathways through it and cool stuff like that. It won't provide direct feed, for your ducks, but it will permanently lock up the dam breast. In most of his projects, it's the first thing that Jeff Lawton plants on a dam breast is bamboo, because well, it's not a great feedstock in of itself, though you can cut it down and feed the leaves of it to things like cattle and sheep. It is such a useful tool that does so many things long term, assuming there's enough other area for open pasture. Uh, it's worth doing, and you know that once it fills in, it's permanent. And you won't have to fight it. So there's two ways to do this. One, like Nick said, if we plant it all with forbs and, and grasses and herbs, and we use it as pasture and manage it as pasture, and whenever it starts to get a little unruly, we simply mow it, we will never have a problem with trees colonizing. Even though trees will try, they won't be as nurtured and sheltered as by being surrounded by Siberian pea shrub and things like that. I completely agree with Nick on that. Um, but... You will be able, like, it doesn't matter that a locust seed landed there and it starts to grow when it gets chomped by a duck or mowed by a lawnmower. A few times, eventually, it gives up the ghost, so to say, and you never have that problem. So, you keep it open enough to maintain with grazing and mowing, or you lock it up with something like bamboo. Those that would be my addition. That's just one more option because if you have significant area for the ducks to feed you might find the sheltered area and the material use of the bamboo to outweigh your need for yet more fodder. With Muscovies especially, though, Nick's dead on with the grass as a feed source. There's nothing a Muscovy likes better than decent pasture. My Muscovies eat the least amount of feed out of the feed tray from all my other birds. They eat less. I would say a big Muscovy actually uses more, uses less of my pellet feed than a bantam rooster, honestly, because they're such good foragers and they love grass. Geese will do the same. Anyway, with that, let's go to another one. Let's hear from Jessica Mills on choosing between a solo hike or hiking with a partner. Hey, TSPers, Jessica Dixie Mills here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land to answer a question for John. John says, I have a trip planned to the Brooks Range in June. Should I hike solo or take at least one person with me? Background, I've been seeking solitude and adventure for some time and decided last year I want to see the Brooks Range and experience hiking through it for at least a week. From the inception of my plan, I have wanted to complete the journey solo. I don't want to worry about accommodating timelines of someone else or making alterations to my plan. I plan on hiking from Anaktuvik Pass to the Dalton Highway, about 60 to 65 miles, and arrange for transportation south from there. 
My original plan was to hike along the Continental Divide to minimize water crossings, though I have found other planned routes which document known issues and best solutions. Either way, there are no established trails. I know that any area can be explored and blazed. I'm considering following areas with documented travel as it should be more safe and the best choice for traveling solo, which... I definitely agree with that. Knowing what you're in for while solo makes sense. But anyway, on to the rest of the question. Uh, as uh, as far as gear, I have suitable gear and will take an appropriate pistol, Garmin inReach, sat phone, bear canister, etc. Now to the real question. Is it better to go alone or with at least one friend? Here are my evaluation criteria. One, environmental, things like water crossings, falls, trips. Two, wildlife. More people lessons being targeted by predators. And three, psychological. I say I want to be alone, but can this cause an issue with anxiety or will my sleep be affected with possible predator pressure? And then four, anything else that may derail me. Look forward to your insight and expertise. Also, if I'm out of my mind, let me know. Thanks, John from PA. Okay. So, John, thanks for the question, and it sounds like you have quite the Alaskan adventure planned, and I'm very excited for you. And also, thanks for introducing me to this, because I have Alaska left on my 50 states list to explore, and uh, I wasn't aware of this, so I'm hoping to learn from you. (laughs) But uh, first, I just want to say, I read up on the Brooks Range and the trek you're planning, and, you know, it definitely looks like... Um, while there are no established trails that you're taking the best precautions for going on a solo trip of this kind, like it's something that you can read up on and do research where other people have gone. And also there are other people who have done this as a solo trek, just Googling a little bit. I read that. So you should find some comfort in that. Now, as far as being nervous, I don't think you're out of your mind at all. I get nervous still when I go on treks and when I plan trips like the night before and even the day of before I set my feet on the trail I'm like oh my gosh I've forgotten something you know I feel like throwing up because I'm I'm nervous um but the thing is as long as you have food water and shelter covered like you're gonna be okay right (laughs) but uh so anyway I think you know you're normal to be concerned about this that's a very typical thing um but as far as the gear that you talked about I feel like having the inReach and the sat phone might be overkill it looks like most people only carry an inReach these days um but that also depends on what makes you comfortable and if you're like hey if I'm going to go do this solo and the only way I feel comfortable is to also have a sat phone then go for it but I did read that some people in Alaska have issues with sat phones like they can't get them to work but then certain ones like I read um, for a certain region the uh, Iridium network might be the best etc so if you're going to carry one make sure you do your research on what will work best for the region you're going to be in Um, you didn't mention navigation and now I know that this is not an established trail so there might not be you know like a uh, a gut hook. Well, what used to be known as gut hook. Anyway, there might not be a specific route, um, in an app, like all trails or something, uh, for you to use. But I saw that a lot of folks who go out there for hunting are using the Gaia app and you can use the GPS through your phone and you just need to make sure that you download your layers before you lose signal, before you head out there. So you might want to familiarize yourself with that. Um, but I think having that ability to navigate, if you have an InReach Explorer Plus, that 
can also have maps in it, but I don't know. I like having more than one thing just in case something gets busted, you know, two forms of navigation. And then there's always the map and compass if you actually know how to use that. Um, and going out there, I think that that would be a good idea. But now for the big question and the, the main thing you were focusing on, to go alone or to not go alone. Uh, I hate to take the easy road out and say it, but the truth is it, it really depends on you. It's really up to you. Um, you didn't mention your experience level, like if you've done a lot of backpacking, solo backpacking, and if you have, then, you know, why not? Why not give it a go? I, I do agree that there is safety in numbers, um, but I understand the feeling of not wanting to deal with someone else's preferences too. So uh, as far as environmental issues, you have the inReach, so make sure for water crossings it's attached to you. Um, so if you end up falling down in the crossing and you're going down the creek or river or whatever and you need to ditch your pack so you can swim to the bank, if you have the inReach attached to you, then you can still call for help. And, of course, be sure to study proper water crossing safety and practice that if you can before you go um, to just minimize risk. And then for trips and falls, I mean, the biggest issue would be losing consciousness and just continuing to be unconscious. But if you've got the in-reach, you know, in in arm's reach, then you should be able to call for help. So I don't know that having another person in the instance of floating down the river or tripping and falling would necessarily be so beneficial that it's worth bringing somebody with you. And if you find some sort of obstacle that you don't feel comfortable with, turn back. You know, that is always an option. Um, with wildlife, I do agree that, you know, it's it's been said that wildlife is less likely to attack if there are more humans. But does two really significantly change the situation compared to one, you know? Um, sure, a group of like five or six or ten or whatever, but, you know, from one to two people, does that really reduce the risk that much? I, I don't know, but this is just something to consider. Um but what I do know is that you're not hunting, so you're not dragging a fresh carcass with you. Otherwise, I would definitely say have someone there to help watch your back. Um, while you will have food, uh, it's just, you know, to me, not as risky if you're out there elk hunting or something. Um, and then that, that's just where you see a lot of bear attacks. But for the psychological, um, being alone in grizzly bear country... Um, I don't know. It made me feel pretty alive when I was up in Montana. And I know that uh, Alaska is a different beast and, and different critters out there. Um, but it's just one of those things that when you get done, you have such a huge boost of confidence. Like, I did this by myself, you know. Um, for dealing with being alone psychologically, sometimes just having a podcast to listen to, to hear a human voice helps me. I've listened, like, Jack... I've listened to TSP so much on trail. Jack has hiked miles and miles and miles with me that he doesn't even know about. Just talking in my ear, just having a conversation, you know. <laughs> um, and I'm not going to lie. Sometimes when I'm feeling really lonely, like I might even talk back. Um, but Or having music to listen to. But I will caution you and say you might want to do it by just having one earbud in your ear. That way you can still hear your surroundings with the other ear. Uh, and then also having a journal at night, being able to journal and feel like I'm you know, communicating with somebody helps me. So maybe those are some tips to help you deal with that part of it. But again, you can always turn back if, you know, you find yourself miserable. But I do think that being alone in our minds and spending time alone in nature is very beneficial for us. 
Um, but if you do decide to take somebody with you, I would say make sure it's somebody that you talk to. You let them know that, hey, we're going to be alone together. You know, we're going to be doing our own things. If I decide I want to stop and camp before you, then I hope you're going to be okay with that. So um, maybe that's another option and kind of a middle of the ground, not somebody that you have to stick with the whole time and they're cool with that too. But anyway, I hope that that helps some. Uh, I would love for you to follow up with me after your adventure and let me know how it went. Uh, you can just shoot me an email at homemadewanderlust at gmail.com. But if any of y'all have other questions about backpacking or vlogging or sharing things on YouTube, feel free to get those questions in for Jack. But thank you again, John, and best wishes to you and happy trails is what I would say. But, you know, ha happy trekking. <laughs> All right, y'all. Bye. You know, good stuff. And uh, I would just say that... There's inherent risk to everything, and if we let the outside risk that something bad would happen interfere with our dreams, then that's a great way to ensure that we never fulfill our dreams. I, I have something going on right now that uh, may or may not happen, but if it does, it'll be kind of a dream thing and like a dream event in my life to be able to get to do a thing uh, with a certain group of people that, that has an inherent risk to it, right? It's not getting on a, a, a rocket with Elon and going to space or anything, but it has an inherent... Like, if the worst of the worst happens, you could end up dead. I'm not going to not do it because of that, because I realize that every time I get in my, my Toyota truck or my Dodge Challenger and go down the road, even if I drive like a sane old man like I am, I take an inherent risk that I could be hit by a car, uh, I could be killed, I could be you know, uh, crippled for the rest of my life. Uh, I have a, a trip planned out to the West Coast this time with my wife uh, in May, and we're going to get on an airplane, and if that crashes, we can die, right? Uh, I, I go out without a mask on, and I don't get my Pfizer shots and everything, and I could get sick someday, and I could get really sick and die. Uh, I occasionally eat some things I shouldn't. That has a health risk to it, but it also has a certain uh, enjoyment factor. And as long as it's not overdone, I'm not excessively making a risk. So I would say, like, one of the things that I would really advise a person, if you're going to trek solo through the wilderness, whether it's for 12 hours, 12 days, or 12 weeks, that what you do is you mitigate the risk a little bit. Carrying something, like Jessica mentioned, would be one thing. But it's also the case that, like, I'm not going to play around rock climbing outside of what I need to do to get down the trail. Because there's certain parts of like the Appalachian where you are rock climbing by being on the trail. I mean like vertical as as ascent. I'm not going to be adding that to my things. I'm not going to be jumping across a creek with slippery rocks so I could turn an ankle when I'm alone. I'm going to be less likely to take that approach. So being a little bit more cautious and a little more thoughtful of your steps and things is one way to mitigate risk without giving up an opportunity to do something that it sounds like this guy really wants to do. With that, let's move on. Again, John Pugliano crams so much into this segment. I'm just going to say, not only is it great answers, it shows you what an expert John really is about investment advice, because to get this much into such a, a, slow, a small segment is pretty amazing. John, take it away. Well, OTSP, we have a number of questions. I'm going to go through them quickly. As always, if I don't fully answer your question, feel free to contact me directly. Now, our first question comes from our friend, John in Moore Park. He's asking, when is it a good time to buy a new car in 2023? John also mentions that he currently owns a Prius, and he's also looking to buy, you know, perhaps another small-type hybrid car. 
Well, John, your question is, when is the best time in 2023? And I don't know that exactly because I don't know if or to what extent we'll get a recession. As you've heard me talk about before, I mean, every indicator is pointing to at least a shallow recession in 2023, if not something more severe. And if that happens, whenever we do get into the depths of the recession, that's when the dealerships will offer the best incentives. Over the last 14 years, I've purchased four cars for my family, and two of those purchases happened during major recessions. Uh, One of them was during the Cash for Clunkers deal in 2009, and the other one was at the height of the pandemic hysteria in April of 2020. So whenever possible, I do try and time my car purchases to coincide with, you know, the business cycle recession that comes every, you know, seven to 10 years. In any case, um, I don't know exactly when that's going to happen. I assume, though, for the unemployment numbers to get where they need to be to have a deep recession, that wouldn't happen until, say, sometime in the summer or the fall of 2023. So I'd wait to see what happens with the economy and how deep of a recession we go into. The other thing I'd mention is that you mentioned looking at a hybrid, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has nothing to do with inflation reduction, uh, but it's a big boondoggle for green energy. They will be offering substantial EV discounts and rebates. My understanding on hybrids is that only those that are electrical plug-ins will qualify for the discount. So a traditional Prius that has the internal combustion engine along with the batteries wouldn't count for rebates. That's my understanding anyways. So keep that in mind. I do think, though, with the sluggishness of the economy and the fact that there are going to be a lot of incentives to get people to buy EVs, that's going to force the internal combustion engine manufacturers to offer discounts as well. Now, one caveat to all this, I'll say is that I definitely expect us to see better car prices in 2023 than we've seen in the previous couple years. Uh, And that's already happened with, and I mean, you've seen a big collapse in used car prices. But the caveat is, is that there is still a huge demand, particularly from the upper middle class, to buy new vehicles. And that's because over the last three years, because of the shortage in semiconductors, there's been a severe shortage of new cars, and I think the uh, you know the average age of a car on the road is at an all-time record high at something like 13 and a half years. So I do expect new car prices to hold up better than used car prices, and again, it'll just depend on how deep of a recession we go into as to what incentives are being offered. Our next question comes from John, and he's asking about agricultural ETFs. He mentions the ones that he's currently looking at, and that would include... M-O-O, V-E-G-I, and D-B-A. And he's asking if I have any other recommendations on any of those. Well, John, you captured in some of the big dominant ones. A couple others to add to the list are corn, C-O-R-N, wheat, W-E-A-T, soybean, S-O-Y-B, till, T-I-L-L. And there's even a ETF of kind of ag ETFs, which is T-A-G-S. Now, John also mentions here that he's looking at things like what the actual holdings are in these various ETFs, whether they pay a dividend and how well balanced they are. Uh, John, you're definitely on the right track with that. A couple other things I would add, though, is I would also look at the management fee. Some of these are very pricey. In fact, there's definitely a correlation with how cute the acronym of the ETF is with how high of a marketing fee they charge for the ETF. For example, if you look at some of those, the corn and the wheat and the soybean, 
I think you'll find that they have a much higher management fee than something like a DBA. Now, as far as whether it's a good time or not to get into agricultural products, I really don't have an opinion one way or the other. I will say that if we go into a recession, initially, all asset classes decline. And that includes things that people think are traditionally safe, even things like gold and precious metals. Whenever you have that initial pullback and a decline in the economy, there's a fear that goes through the market and the movement is always towards cash. And it's sort of a spin on Grisham's law where bad money forces out good money. It's the same way where bad investments force people to sell their good investments to cover their short positions and their losses. So if we do go into recession, and particularly if it's a deep recession, I think you'll see better prices on agricultural and all these other commodities as we bottom out and come out of the recession because they're very cyclical and they tend to do very well at the beginning of the new uptrend. The other thing I'd mention is that I personally rarely deal specifically in commodities and commodity-related ETFs. And it isn't that I don't ever do it. It's just I do it rarely because there's a great deal of decay that occurs with ETFs that use leverage and futures and those type contracts, which are what's needed in most cases to invest in commodities. I have a video I did several years ago where I talk about ETF decay. I'll see if I can find that and pass it on to Jack, and he can list that if he wants to. But you can see this by simply pulling up a chart of something like DBA or any of the ETFs that you mentioned, and look at their long-term performance compared to a high-quality blue-chip company that's in that same related industry. So over the long term, look at, say, DBA's performance versus John Deere or Archer Daniel Midland. And in most cases, you'll find that the individual stocks, these good-quality blue-chip, in many cases multinational companies, will perform much better over the long run than the underlying commodity. And again, a lot of that has to do with the expensive nature of buying futures contracts within these ETFs. And finally, our last question is another good one. It comes from Robert. He says, is it better to sell stocks at a loss now so that more cash is available for the upcoming likely opportunities? Or should we ride it out at this point? Well, Robert, I'm running out of time here. Bottom line, your question is about market timing. And the naysayers to that and those that favor buy and hold strategies would tell you that it's nearly impossible to outperform the market, and so you are better off just riding out the bad times along with the good. I don't totally disagree with that. I think for people that are not going to pay attention to the market, and especially for people that are going to panic and sell and never get back in, that for those people it is better to just dollar-cost average into a major index like the S&P 500 through an ETF like SPY. So buy and hold does work over the long, long term. But here's the catch. My philosophy in terms of market timing is that I am not interested in outperforming the market on a consistent basis. And what I mean by that is, for example, in 2008, let's say that you were invested in the S&P 500 and you sold call options against it, which is essentially a way to guarantee that you beat the market. Well, in that case you would have lost maybe 46% of your portfolio versus the S&P 500 losing, you know, 48 or 49%. So you beat the market, but you still lost nearly half of your portfolio. So had you gotten out of the market before the total collapse in 2008 and waited to get back in early in 2009, 
If you had just invested in the S&P 500, then in 2010, 2011, you know, every one of those years, you would not be outperforming the market because you're just simply in the market. But the bottom line effect on your portfolio that by the end of 2013 or certainly into 2014, while the buy and holders had waited patiently sitting on their hands to get back to where they were, you would have doubled your portfolio. And that's because when the market goes down 50%, mathematically, it has to go up 100% just to get back to where it was. So in theory, in those years from you know 2010 to 2014 or 13, you would have never on paper outperformed the market, but you would have ended up with twice as much money. I know it's a little convoluted and hard to get your head around, but I think that if you are pretty sure that a train wreck is going to occur, that you're much better off getting out of the way because you can always get back in. And that is the key. The mistake that I see people make, especially preppers in our community, is they get out and then they never get back in. And they miss all the upside. And that's where the opportunity always is. It's always on the upside after a period of a bad recession. It's just like buying that car that John from Moore Park was asking about. You want to buy when there's blood in the street. Well, hey, as always, thanks for the questions. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. Now, the duration of that segment was a little longer than I said. It's about nine minutes, but wow. Talk about, like, that's a podcast in of itself, really, right there. Uh, anyway, let's move on from there. I, I have a great one. We haven't heard from Amy Dingman from A Farmer's Kind of Life in quite a while. This is about homeschooling, but it's about getting your kiddos to respect deadlines. And I think this will be incredibly valuable for not just homeschoolers, but everybody, because I think respecting a deadline is in the same league as being on time when you agree to meet somebody. It's about being respectful of the other party's time. And when you're not, what you're inherently saying is, well, I was busy, right? Or something came up. And all that means is, my time is more valuable than yours. And so that is not something I want in the moral framework of my, my, my son, and it's not there. He's now an adult. But I also want to make sure it's not in the moral framework of my grandchildren. Like, you do what you want with your moral framework. That's, that's kind of part of my parenting philosophy. But when that kiddo becomes an adult, I want certain moral framework in there that their decisions are based on. Anyway, Amy, what say you on this very important topic? Hey, everybody, this is Amy Dingman again with the podcast, A Farmish Kind of Life. I'm here to answer a homeschooling question. This is actually a question that's come in a couple times, and it is about when you have a homeschooled child, how do you get them to respect deadlines? And this can be an issue in some homeschools, depending on how you're choosing to homeschool or what kind of curriculum you're doing. If you have something that's a little bit more relaxed, you might have issues with kids respecting deadlines because deadlines can be kind of arbitrary when you are homeschooling. So I do have a couple suggestions about how to make deadlines more of a thing and to get your kids to respect deadlines. Number one, you have to have some deadlines, right? And I know some of you probably just freaked out a little bit about this, especially if you're a very relaxed homeschooler, but stick with me. A deadline does not have to be this paper needs to be done by because some of you are not doing homeschool like that. But deadlines happen all the time in real life, right? It can be, I need the bathroom cleaned by the time you go to bed tonight, or the lawn has to be mowed this week, or we need to be in the car by 
those are all deadlines as well. Sometimes when we think about deadlines as a homeschooler, we're thinking it's kind of hard to set deadlines because I'm not making my kids write papers. I'm not making my kids do this giant project. Um, so it can feel a little bit different. So deadlines exist. You just have to think about them a little differently. Secondly, there has to be a consequence for not meeting a deadline. Now, this is going to backfire if you just arbitrarily set a deadline on a project that your kids can totally see through, right? However, having said that, there are some things in life we just have to do because someone said we have to, right? We're not just making up a deadline to prove a point. If our kids don't finish their project, it's not like we can give them a bad grade. And even if we do, as a homeschooler, what does that mean? What does that even mean? We can't give them detention because that's really just a punishment for us, right? To teach kids to get their work done or to struggle through a task that they don't necessarily care for, there has to be something that happens if they don't do it. I am a big fan of real-life consequences, using real-life consequences when possible. Back when I was in public school, the consequence for repeatedly not turning in your assignments was that you failed the class. The consequence for being tardy three times in a week was detention. The consequence for forgetting to bring your lunch was you didn't eat till you went back home because nobody was calling their parents back then telling them to bring their lunch into them. Consequences in homeschool can be a little bit more tricky, though, because we don't have the same setup. It's really easy to say, if you're not ready to leave by 11, we're going to be late and we're not going to go. That's an obvious real-life consequence, and that makes sense, right? But if you assign a paper to your kid and they don't get their paper done, or they don't do their reading, or they don't finish the art project, what happens? Mom gets mad and yells. Dad gets mad and yells. You make them spend Saturday finishing the paper instead of going fishing with their friends. What happens if the child turns to you and says, but why does it have to be done by Saturday? We're homeschoolers, right? Some of us have kids who question, right? Why does it need to be done by Saturday? We're homeschoolers. Herein lies the problem, okay? And I get some of you are listening to this this little episode here and you're like, what? <laughs> this would never happen in my house. Other people homeschool different ways. So I'm, I'm trying to reach out to all of you here. The thing you have to do is figure out the currency. All right. Sometimes you have to resort to other measures. Every person has something they value that can be used as currency. If someone told me they were going to take away Mahalo Rose coffee, if I didn't make a weekly meal plan every Sunday night, I would plan out meals for months at a time. You guys, that's a currency for me. What does your kid value? Wi-Fi is very often a major currency, as is being chauffeured to a friend's house or being able to use a cell phone. You've decided to slack off on your responsibilities. Here's what that means. And yes, you are a homeschooler and your responsibilities as a homeschooler is you have that paper done for me by Friday night. I don't think this is a battle of wills. I don't think this is a parent trying to control the show. I think this is, kid, I'm hoping to release you into the world with an ability to stand on two feet, and there are some things you should learn here in the safety of your home before you head out into the great beyond. If you want to take the kinder, gentler approach, you can very easily create currency and dangle it above their heads. Your kids love to go out for ice cream, explain there's going to be a trip to the ice cream shop every Friday afternoon on weeks that school goes really well. And then remember, you're going to need to have a solid definition for what school goes really well actually means, right? And some people are going to call this bribing. There's lots, lots of stuff that's said in the homeschooling community. If you are in it, you know. Some people will call this bribing. I call it a goal. 
I mean, I get up in the morning because there's coffee. I want my coffee, right? (laughs) If my kids want to complete their book on time because it means we're going to go out for ice cream, more power to them. In my opinion, homeschooling is an agreement between a parent and a child. And having consequences for not completing tasks isn't mean, even though you're going to hear people who are going to say otherwise. Consequences are an inherent part of life. Back when we were homeschooling, I had to tell my children a few times when things got really hairy. Listen, in the state of Minnesota, you are required to be educated from ages 7 to 16. You have the choice to be educated here or at the public school. Here are my expectations if we are going to homeschool. You make the choice. Homeschooling can be a really flexible journey, steeped in freedom, but that doesn't mean it's void of responsibility. So that's my two cents about that. Getting kids to respect deadlines is really about a bigger respect and understanding. We chose to homeschool. We got some cool freedom here. We got some awesome things that we can do. But you know what? I've still got deadlines. I still have you. To, I still want you to complete X, Y, Z. And whatever that is for you as the parent, that it's your house. That's your thing. Deadlines are a part of life. And uh, it doesn't matter if it's this paper needs to be done by. Don't don't freak out about that because you're a homeschooler. Deadlines are a part of life. If you are getting frustrated by your kids' disrespect and deadlines, we need to have consequences. That's a real-life thing. There you have it. Thank you for your questions. Be sure to send in more about homeschooling, parenting, family life, and head over to Amazon and check out my Homeschool Highway series. It is a funny and honest and awesome uh, set of books if if I do say so myself. Thanks for listening you guys. Have a great day. I totally agree with the approach that Amy is advocating. Basically there has to be consequences and consequences with kids really work best when there's a currency. And so I also when it's possible like to let kids choose their own consequences. We make a deal you're going to get a thing done by a certain time and I say well what should happen if you don't get it done? That gets them thinking about it in advance. See, we want to engage that prefrontal cortex that human beings have at a more developed level than any other being that we know of anyway that can actually understand like what a consequence is and what the future brings. And it's interesting that when they choose their own consequence, sometimes they're harsher on themselves than you would be. And then when it happens, you're like, well, you know, it was your idea. You agreed to it. I also have other ways of creating consequences, like you're still going to do the thing, but the good thing's not going to happen now. So my grandson has a job every day. His job every day that he's here, with certain exceptions, like if everything froze or something, is go dump the duck pools, go move the duck pools, refill the duck pools so the ducks have water. It's a job. Do you know what jobs have? A paycheck. There's a daily payment for doing your job. However, I just had a conversation this morning about the fact that I shouldn't have to mention the job. The deadline is, you come here, and very soon after you get here, since the ducks have no water, because the water is either nasty, or I've already dumped it and moved it where I wanted them to go, because I didn't want to explain it to you, you should get up, carry your happy little bit outside, locate the new location, and fill up the pools. It's a job. I've given you a job. I pay you to do a job. You see how that works. Why do I, as a business owner, pay someone to do something? So I don't have to worry about it being done anymore. I'm not your manager. I'm your employer. If I have to tell you to do it, I could just as well do it myself. If I have to remind you, if it ever doesn't get done because you just don't do it, then it's no longer a job. It's now something I have to deal with. If I have to deal with it, it's a chore. 
And being a smart young man, when he's been told that, he said, what's the difference between a chore and a job? A chore is something you do because you're here and you're part of our household and you're required to. It does not pay you to get it done. A job is something you assume responsibility for, take on that responsibility, and just do so the person paying you no longer has to worry about it. So there are multiple ways to make this work. I've also always said give your kids lots of stuff because then you have lots of things to take away. When my son was a little bit older than my grandson is now, he's kind of in his teens, he was in that whole world of branching out. We didn't have like all these cell phones and stuff with internet access, though. We had DSL, right? We didn't have cable modems and badass speeds. We had the precursor of badass speeds, the low-end DSL that we first rolled out all over the country. And we had a wireless router, and the wireless router allowed you to access the Internet. And there was tons of things that he enjoyed about the Internet. He had a sling box set up so he could throw video around the house, all kinds of stuff I didn't even understand. But I knew one thing. None of it worked. Without the password. And in 10 seconds, I could change the password on the wireless router. So when things were not done when they were supposed to be, I didn't yell. I didn't get mad. I didn't do anything except change the password. And then he would come to me and ask me what was wrong. And I'd say, is all the stuff you're... I wouldn't even say, you didn't do this. I would just say, is all the things that you're supposed to have done by now done? Well, uh, um, so you want to use my wireless router that I pay for. And the things that are supposed to be done aren't done. Figure it out. Put it on them to correct their own problem, and people solve problems when you make it their problem. That's, that's a tip for management, that's parenting, that's dealing with employer relationships. Think, you know, sometimes as an employee, you have a problem that you do not have the authority to solve. Your boss has the authority to solve it, but they don't want to deal with it. Without being a dick and getting yourself fired, what you do is you put the problem squarely in their lap. This doesn't mean that you narc them out. It means you send them the problem repeatedly, until the problem becomes enough of an annoyance that they fix it. Just a thought. Moving on, I wanted to talk to you about changing the way we look at farming and improving our land and stopping the bad things that we're doing to our land, like exporting topsoil, creating dead zones, destroying our fertility, overusing chemicals, etc. And the only way to really get our heads around this is to understand what farming and ranching are. They are not things that we do to feed others. That's not the motivation, right? Now, if you're philanthropic and you have lots of money, you might start an organic farm because it's your mission in life. But farmers in general go into farming because they have the opportunity to go into farming and it's a way to make money. It's a business. Farming's a business and anybody that tries to farm without treating it like a business soon finds out that it is a business and then they go bankrupt and they lose what they have. It happens all the time, especially with pie-in-the-sky young people who are like, I'm going to do it different, man. I'm going to run a nonprofit, And the only thing they successfully do is fail the profit. And then they fail to keep their farm, and then they lose their farm, and then they're like sad, and they don't understand what happened. Well, the farmers that make it, especially farmers who have had the tradition of farming and ranching handed down to them, are acutely aware that farming is a business. And so if we want to fix farming, if we want to fix ranching, and we want to fix the underlying component of land management within it, we need to understand how farmers make business decisions. And they don't make business decisions much differently than a tech company or a manufacturing company does. Every person in business in the United States today, because we work on a fiat monetary system, that is a short time preference situation set up to make sure that the person that's running a business has to meet a metric 
or they go out of business thanks to that short time preference. Yeah? So just like a tech company wants forecasts from its salespeople, you know, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annually, and seldom looks out to the second year, third year, fourth year, that's what farmers do. Because what happens in the fifth year doesn't matter if I go bankrupt in the first year. That's just the hard reality of where we're at. And we need a different incentive structure without having to fundamentally change this reality because, bluntly, we're not going to change this reality. So then we have to ask ourselves, and no one does this, what business is a farmer really in when he does take the long-time preference and looks at quitting his job, not working anymore, when he's 60 or 65 or 70. What is his real business? Is it growing corns and bean? Is it growing wheat? Is it growing cattle? Is it growing trees? Is it growing fruit? Is it growing nuts? Is it growing lettuce? Is it growing things? Is that his true business when you look at it as a business person in the long-time preference? And the answer is astounding to many people, no. No. The the farmer that runs an orchard of almonds and peaches in California is no more in the business of growing almonds and peaches than McDonald's is in the business of making hamburgers. Ray Kroc very famously one time told a group of college graduates where he had spoken at their graduation ceremony and went out to eat with them and have a few beers in a local bar, some of the top people in the class, and he asked them all, what business do you think I'm in? And they didn't want to answer it because everybody felt stupid because everybody knew Ray Kroc was the guy behind the McDonald's franchise and he was in the food business. But somebody finally did. And he said, I thought you would say that. He said, no, 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 folks. Hamburgers and shakes and fries pay for the actual business I'm in. I am in a real estate business. And if you look at McDonald's, we own some of the choicest real estate, most expensive real estate, highest appreciating real estate on the planet. And at and, and this point, I think the only entity that actually owns, that's a private, I guess a pseudo-private entity or in, like not a nation in of itself, even though it sort of is a nation, the Catholic Church is the only entity that owns more real estate in value than McDonald's. That could have changed, but I, I think that's the case. So the farmer is a real estate investor. And the extra strategy for a farmer is, at the end of my farming career, I will sell my farm or in some other way generate cash flow from the land if I'm handing it down to heirs. And that's how I'll retire. And so everything the farmer does is to survive until such time as that comes with that in the bank at the end. Now, with mega corporations and all running farms, now, that's changed for them, but it hasn't changed for the person that still says, that's my 5,000 acres, or that's my 40,000 acres. And there's an individual that owns that particular farm. That is the primary, even if they wouldn't tell you that, if you dig into it and make them look at it, that's what they would tell you. So the real long-time preference is the value of the land. And then the only other goal is to have a living wage and not lose the land between then and now. 
This is why farmers often break off pieces and sell off pieces, and farms get smaller and smaller while the giant conglomerates get bigger and bigger, because I can sell this piece of real estate and cash in a partial early retirement. That's what's actually being done. So we have to then change the time preference to look at, well, what is the value of the land? So what is the value of land in a place where somebody farms, whether it's 10-acre, you know, small farm, a one-acre urban farm, or a 10,000-acre corn and bean farm somewhere in, like, rural Arkansas or Missouri? What is it really based on? Well, it's based on the fertility of the soil. That's what it's based on. The more fertile that soil is, the more valuable the land, because the lower the input's necessary for the next person that goes into farming. They basically have, unless it's going to be handed down to heirs, and this still matters, and we'll come back to it, but they basically have two possible exit strategies. One is they sell it to somebody else who wants to go in the business of farming. Two, they're in the direct, they're in the direct path of urban sprawl, and somebody wants to buy the farm and convert it into a subdivision for yuppies. That's their two ways, that they, and they actually will profit more in the second scenario where the yuppies come. So if you're way out in the middle of nowhere, that's a pipe dream. It's probably never happening. But if you're near one of these urban renewal cities in some of these rural areas that are beginning to grow, this is a possibility. And many farmers have cashed in, and farmland has been turned into yuppie land. Now, so what we need is a strategy that, one, puts more money in the exit strategy for the farmer, no matter how that is. Leasing the land to somebody else, handing it to their heirs and taking a piece of the cash flow. No matter what it is, that farmer needs to be able to see that these management practices will increase that end of their their career, the value at the end of it. It needs to continue to provide them enough to live from what they earn and not lose their land. And if we did that in a way where the underlying value of the real estate went up, not just in the fiat system, because as things depreciate, land appreciates, right? Land goes up over time in price. But the intrinsic value of the land actually went up, when right now it actually goes down. People will pay more for 40 acres or 400 acres or 4,000 acres than they did, let's say, 30 or 40 years ago across the timeline of a farmer's career. But they are actually buying land in most situations, if it's not been under proper management, most of it hasn't, that's worth less in real value today. It's simply appreciated because real estate and land prices go up. But what would happen if somebody took this piece of land and by the time they were ready to retire, the land was four or five or ten times more fertile and productive than when they bought it, And you add in this natural appreciation of real estate prices. Well, the land would be worth far much more money. It would be worth so much money if we built a farm to the point where, let's say, had a cation exchange of about 30 instead of 5 or 8 that many farms have now because of chemical usage. That land would be so valuable as farmland that even if the yuppies were advancing, The yuppies would never buy the land because it would be so valuable as farmland, it would never fit. Or if it was going to go into some yuppie thing, it would have to be something like village homes in California. It would have to be something that also capitalized on that fertility. It wouldn't make sense. Nobody would ever sell it, whether it was grazing land or cropping land or some combination thereof. It would be so valuable to the next farmer the next rancher, that it could never be sold as real estate for people to live in houses in, 
And again, unless it's some sort of conjoined community that we've talked about. Because it would be outpriced. You don't need fertile land to push away all the topsoil, leave a few trees, put in some cul-de-sacs, and build stick and brick houses. You just don't need it, so you don't invest in it as a real estate investor in a conventional subdivision. So how do we do this? We come up with new management practices. We start teaching farmers to plant trees and tree lines and cut up their land that way. You see trees being planted by farmers through you know grants with NRCS and what have you. But what do they do? They just ring the field and they don't put anything through the center. All we have to do is teach these farmers about things like USDA, Code 600, agricultural terraces. You and I call them swales. And how they can be combined with civil pasture tree systems, even in a cropping system. And that we can take their giant combines, all their farm equipment, whatever it is they use. And we can make sure that we design that system so it doesn't impede the use of the equipment. There's huge subsidies given away in farms right now. Trillions of dollars over decades given to farmers to not grow things or to grow certain things. We could take a small portion of that and pay them to not plant 2 to 3% of their land to make accommodations for these tree-based systems, and they would have greater productivity within five years. If we teach them about producing things like biochar and incorporating them into the soil and building humus and building up the microorganisms back in the soil, We can very quickly restore even broad-scale ecosystems. And you know what people say when you talk like this? Well, we need to prove that it works. And the answer to that question or that statement is no, we don't. We have all the proof we need that it works. And you know where most of it comes from? The third world. There's been countless agricultural studies done where people do not have the luxuries that we do in the United States and the Western world of highly mechanized farming and just being able to dump all the chemicals that we want on where it's not available. What's been done in Africa alone through the planting of a certain species of acacia, and, and basically the model that I'm giving you here, and, and making biochar with a freaking drum, a barrel, a 55-gallon barrel, And other things, and, and we do that, and it works. And these farmers turn these fields that have been basically utilized to the point of not producing anything anymore into incredibly productive systems. And we do this, and we know we're doing this in these places. And we sit back and go, well, that's for them over there because they don't have the sophisticated equipment we do. This is insane. With our sophisticated equipment, we could do it a hundred times better. Tree-lined systems, and I know I always say it, but grazing-based systems, even if you're going to crop, are the most productive systems we can create. We can fix all these problems. And if you're one of the people that does believe it's CO2 that's causing global warming, then you need this done. And if you're like me, one of these people, like CO2 probably has some effect on our temperature, but nowhere near the alarmist rate that it's given and it taxing me for how much energy I use will not fix the planet. Me eating less food will not fix the planet. Me eating bugs will not fix the planet. You probably still realize the absolute ecological catastrophe that we exist in as a society today. And the most damage is done by agriculture. As much as I hate mining, more damage is done to our, our ecology by farming than mining. 
And by the way, a shit ton of the mining being done is being done to support agriculture. You know, not all mining is coal. A lot of mining is phosphorus. Just as one example. But that's actually the solution to the people running the farms. Do you understand that if you will take this long time preference, and maybe you have to phase it in. Somebody with 40 acres maybe starts with an acre. Or four, 10% of the land. 10% of the land gives up 3% of the land. You want to do the math on how much you're actually giving up? It's not even hard. It's 0.3%. That farmer could do the exact same shitty management practices that they were doing until they proved to themselves that this is worth doing and give up 3% of 10% of whatever size that farm is and just start taking a tree-based approach and would immediately, you know, when we think immediacy in, in the world of, of this type of thing, three, five years, start to see increased yields on, on that land. But if they would take further management practices, the incorporation of biochar, stop using chemical fertilizers on that piece of land, give themselves the confidence this works, they could begin to incorporate maybe 10% of their land every year into a new management practice. And there's money available in grants and subsidies to do this. We can use the current shitty system to do good things. I'll always take their money if it's to do something I would have done anyway without it. I'll always do that. And I would advise any business person, and remember a farmer is a business person, or they are soon to be a bankrupt farmer. That's the reality. That's a stone-cold reality of what we're doing. But it is changing that time preference. When I take and put money and effort into doing something in farming, like finding a waste stream, converting it to biochar, inoculating it and incorporating it into my soil, if I look at the next season, it might not do very much. It might only be a small increase. It might even take the second season to really see the increase. But if I understand something a little bit different, whatever I've done, I've already done it for longer than I'll be alive just in the first time I do it. And that every time I do it again, I've done it effectively for human life cycles forever. Because yes, I can throw NPK on the field and I can get a known yield. It is a mathematical formula. It does work if my time preference is this year. But I have to do it again and again and again. And my need to do it never goes down because I'm working a system designed to work that way. The petro agricultural uh, companies made that system to put me in a gerbil wheel forever, and they've been gracious enough to provide me a fiat financing system so I still have an exit strategy so it's still worth doing after I give the best years of my life to destroying the land that I love. Or I can choose another option. And in the end, that other option makes me far wealthier. And if I want to preserve the ability of my family to do this thing, it makes it far more likely. That's the path. It is the changing of the time preference to valuing the long-term fertility of the land more than the short-term yield of the quarter or the season. Just my thoughts. With that, it's amazing how stuff from the Bitcoin world and ag world and health world, all survival, prepping, permaculture, it all meshes together. Because in the end, it's about life 
sustaining systems on our planet. With that, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you did, please remember you can always support the show by becoming a member of the MSB. We added a cure of botanicals to the MSB this week. That alone is probably worth the cost of a membership if you use products like that. You can also buy your items that when you shop online just by starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day I have for you today is the Oregon Self-Sharpening Electric Chainsaw. Now, if you have a huge woodlot and you use a chainsaw all the time, even the smaller one that's cordless probably isn't the thing that you need to do the bulk of your work. And you certainly don't want to be running around on a 40-acre woodlot with an extension cord plugged in for the plug-in model. If you own, like I do, a few acres down to a suburban lot, and you need to occasionally fell trees, you need to cut limbs and things like that that are a bit bigger than you would want to do by hand or with a reciprocating saw, this is the tool, especially the plug-in one for the power. If you have like a place that you bring material to buck, which means cut up in small pieces and prune and stuff like that, and the self-sharpening feature is effing amazing. Because when you have a sharp chain, everything is easier. Well, that plug-in saw today is on sale for 90 bucks. Look, guys, you can't buy a shitty saw for 90 bucks, like a pull-in or something like that, uh, a gas-powered saw. These electric saws are every bit as powerful as you will ever need to do the type of work I'm talking about with. I use mine all the time. I cut live oak with it. And I'm telling you, when that stuff's seasoned, there's a video of me cutting it. It seems like the saw maybe is not that powerful. That is a seasoned piece of live oak. It's akin to cutting freaking stone almost. It's that hard. I've seen steel farm bosses bogged down in this stuff. And I, I keep saying I re- need to redo that video, and I do. But um, just understand, the, the plug-in version of this saw for managing, like, you know, when you're you talk about coppicing trees and pollarding trees and stuff like that, and you have the small stuff that uses fodder or, or for other things, there's always still some larger limbs and things that need to be cut, and this is the way to go. Guys, I'm all excited about making biochar, this bucking up material to make biochar with fuel wood, firewood, um, things like that. You know, I had a guy come out that was an arborist, take down a bunch of the kind of dying live oaks to make room for other things here, and he doesn't really cut stuff up to firewood size and all like that normally. He throws the stuff that will fit in a shredder in a shredder, and then he, he kind of just takes the firewood or leaves the firewood behind, and you deal with it. Well, I had him just simply cut all the pieces into like three to four foot lengths for me, and then I bucked it from there. That made it really easy to throw them on a trailer and take them to location. This is the saw for the small landholder. Even if you use a more powerful gas saw, and I definitely recommend you look at steel if you do that because that's what I have. But I'm telling you, for a lot of things, even when you have that more powerful saw, there is just something about it being lightweight, instantly sharpenable, and just working really, really well when dealing with smaller materials. So check it out if you haven't done so. But remember, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping, starting at tspaz.com. With that, I hope you have a great weekend. I will be back on Monday. We'll talk about the results of this week's polls. Remember, you can participate by following me on Twitter. I am the Survival Pod C on Twitter. With that's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough for even if they don't. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the 
American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Show you a better way. 